How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. They go from strength to strength as each will appear before you, Lord God, in Zion. We give praise to you, O Lord, our Savior, for guiding and sustaining and your hand upon Corinth Church and its body of believers for the past 150 years and now going forward. Our trust is in you. Our prayers for your Holy Spirit's continued presence in each of our lives, for strength and courage as we joyfully proclaim your name in our community and through our farther-reaching mission efforts. As you have called us with your great commission to go throughout the world to tell of your glory and saving grace, it is with thanksgiving and praise for how you have enabled us to carry forward your call to us. We honor and praise you for your presence in our lives, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Chris. In the immortal words of the R&B group, Tony, 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 do you know what today is? It's our anniversary. I see that there's only a few people that listen to R&B. All right, we've got to change you guys up. A little less Hank Williams, a little more, more R&B. Let me share with you, um, about 10 years ago, maybe even a little bit longer than that, um, we were going to Guatemala, and in Guatemala, that mission trip was a, is a trip that you stake in stages, and you kind of, you get to the country, and then you get on a bus, and then you go to a very far part of the country, and you stage there for a night, and then you get in the back of four-wheel drive vehicles, and you go farther out, uh, up north to uh, almost the Mexico border, the southern Mexican border, and it's in the Guatemalan highlands. And so I want you to imagine kind of like what it would be like to try to drive from Blowing Rock to Linville without Highway 221, the Parkway, or 105. So just, I don't know if you can visualize Blowing Rock to Linville with dirt roads. And so that's what we're, that's what we're up against. And so the few, few years that we'd done it before that, we kind of went on some of these roads, and they were bad, but they were, you know, they were, they were just a real exciting trip in the back of a truck. Well, one year the rains were especially bad, and the main river bridge was washed out. And so they said, no problem, we're going to take you back through a coffee plantation. You and I think of a coffee plantation, and I think if we think of maybe a field about the size of this sanctuary, coffee plantation was miles long, and it, had, it was a compound with armed guards and things like that. And I can remember we were in the back of the truck standing for so long that my daughter... Her ears got so sunburned, you know, that she just had to just cover them up for the rest of the trip. So we were standing in the back of the truck for hours going up what we would call, you know, the profile trail for Grandfather Mountain on our trucks. Well, we spent the week in Guatemala and we're going, man, you know, that one and a half hour trip from the main town to this village took four and a half hours. I sure do hope we're not going to have to do that on the way back. And so while we were there that week during, during the week of our mission trip, the, the, some of the people from the community, and it's called the Kutsal region, some of the other pastors and other folks, went and rebuilt the bridge. Now, I use the word in air quotes, rebuilt the bridge. Now, you, you've seen, you know, <laughs> Legends of the Fall or whatever, or, you know, The Last of the Mohicans. They did this. They went to one side of the, one side of the river, cut down trees, 
laid them over the river, and then lashed them together. That was the bridge over this raging torrential river. And so we're kind of like, well, this is great because death is better than a four and a half an hour drive out of the way. We get back to the, we get over to where this, I've never done this before. It was like, it felt like Indiana Jones. We're in this bus and we get to the place where we're going to have to cross the river on the newly made, lashed together tree trunk bridge over this river, which is about 25 feet below and it is raging. Now, common sense would have said, Empty all the mission team out of the bus and let one person that is very brave drive across and we'd all walk over, right? No, that is far too easy. Keep everyone on the bus so if the bridge breaks, we all die. That's exactly what we did. And I remember Molly and I sitting on the bench and I'm holding her. I was like, sweetie, I'm never going to get to walk you down the aisle, but it's good. And we made it over the other side of the bridge. The bridge held. The municipality came out and built, rebuilt the bridge the next year. But my point is that at a time, at a specific place, people called by Jesus Christ labored together to do something great. At a particular time, people called by Christ who were servants of his labored together to do something great. But now I look back here and it's just 10 years later and that bridge is gone. That bridge is gone. That bridge has been replaced. And so it doesn't take away from the importance of what they did. But the important thing is not that people labored together and built a bridge. The significant thing is how in the world did the Son of God get to people in Guatemala that are far away from everything? That's the difference between the power of the gospel and the power of Christ and the power of people. And so here on our 150th anniversary, we're not talking about the power of people. Paul is going to directly emphasize that. We're talking about the power of God. That we can say 150 years ago when this church is planted, by the grace of God alone, still we meet here together. We can claim together along with all of the saints, the words of Christ, I have built my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so as we come to this text and we come to the book of Corinthians, fitting that we're in Corinth here as well, and we celebrate it, we are thankful for those who have labored in the past. We're thankful for the hard work that they have done to bring people together. But so much more so than that, we stand thankful, recognizing and elevating the work of Jesus Christ. The work of Jesus Christ that is faithful, moving, powerful, and none can stand against it. So if you want to take your Bibles out, turn your, take your Bibles out and turn from 1 Corinthians to chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, we'll start with one. I'll go quickly through these verses so Bob can give you the uh, beautiful application for this 150th Sunday. So in chapter 1, remember, Paul reminds the Corinthians, he reminds them about their identity. He not only reminds them about their identity, he reminds them about their address. And their address is that they are in Jesus Christ. Who they are in Christ, what they are in Christ, and that their place is in Christ. And then in chapter 2, he reminds them of his time with them. He says, now listen, when I was with you, here's what I did. Here's how I spoke to you. And he reminds them also in chapter 2, he says, now listen, don't forget the truth that is in the gospel. The capital T truth that's in there. And so in verse 1, he starts out, and, and, and this also begins the many directions and corrections and rebukes that happen through the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians. So this begins it. And so as he begins, he begins verse 1, not with a put down, but it is a fatherly, a fatherly condescension. 
To, to condescend in a negative way is to talk down to someone, but in a positive way is to take a loftier idea and bring it down to the level where someone can understand it. Uh, past, pastors have this language about it, and they talk about it, and they say, a good pastor will put the cookies on the bottom shelf. That's kind of what they say. They put the cookies. They make the good things accessible. So he's not talking down to them. It is, it is a fatherly condescension. And so in verse 2, Paul says this. He says, listen, I desire that there would be steady maturing around you. So I'm not going to give you, we're not going to go into eschatology. We're not going to talk about predestination and election and all those things. I just want you to get the simple, easy parts of the gospel. I want you to get them down pat. And once you know them, you can move forward. And I want you to think about this like we would think about math. If you do not know, your, my, my grandmother would call them your tutums. Does anybody know what your tutums are? Tutums two is four, tutums three is six. Two, okay, that's your tutums. And she would say, listen, if you don't know your tutums, you're not going to be able to learn algebra and you're not going to be able to learn trigonometry. He says, listen, I want you to get these basic things down so that then in the future we can move forward to deeper and more mature things. Then in verse 3. Verse 3, verse 3 is one of these verses that I think sometimes we throw around. But look at the way he speaks and remember how he does not call them unsaved. In the first chapter, he reminds them who they are in Christ. So here he reiterates that in, in verse 3 of chapter 3. He says, listen, I'm not saying that you aren't saved. But what I'm saying is that you are what are called carnal Christians. You are still more interested in the flesh than you are the spirit. You're still more pivoted and and swayed by what your flesh wants than, than by listening to the Holy Spirit. And at the core, that exhibits an immature Christianity. I'm not saying you're not saved, but you're carnal. You're immature. And so in verse 4, then, he, he gives you a symptom of this. And in verse 4, he says, listen, one of the greatest indicators of an immaturity in the Christian faith in a group of believers, in, in, in your own discipleship, immaturity manifests itself in fussing, arguing and disagreeing that's just it. guys my my wife teaches the one-year-old class it is the most entertaining thing ever in the world i go in there if your kid has a toy they come and they have the toy you've seen me do this a million times then the other kid wants a toy they don't ask for it they go and they take it the other one comes and takes it back and then proceeds to take the toy and it's like bam you know very entertaining very tear-jerking But we would say, we know Christians like that. Their, their lives, the immaturity is manifest in fussing, arguing, disagreeing. And so many people would say, I left the church because of that. And so in verse 5, he comes back and, and reflects on the very last part of verse 4. The very last part of verse 4, he says, Your immaturity is manifest in that you focused on a vessel of Christ more than Christ himself. And then he reiterates it in verse 5. And he says, not who are Paul and Apollos, but he uses the adjective, what? I mean, excuse me, pardon, what, what are they? What are they? What are they? At the most basic level, Corinthians, you are arguing over a tool. You are arguing over a vessel. You are arguing over a servant. You need to remember that God is the one that makes it happen. God is the one that brings life. God is the author and perfecter of our faith through Jesus Christ. It was God's idea to send Christ. It's God and God alone. And he's going to come back and reiterate this idea again and again in verse after verse. 
And so in verse 6, he begins and he gives them and starts with an agricultural illustration. He begins this agricultural illustration, and you guys would hear the echo of this in Christ's parable of the sower. The sower comes out and he spreads the seeds. Well, he says, listen, I came and I planted the seed, Apollos watered it. And so he says the, it's, it's the responsibility of the servant of the tool, of the vessel to serve God. That's what we are. It's not only who we are, but it's what we are. You and I are servants. We are vessels. We are tools. But the who is God. And there's a humility in planting anything, right? And Bob's going to talk about this more. When we plant, we can water that thing all day, but no human has ever caused anything to grow. That is God's department. So he says, we planted and we worked, and that is what we do. We're servants, but it is God who makes it grow. So God gets the glory. And then in verses 7, 8, and 9, he continues on with this agricultural illustration, and he, he expands on it. And he says, listen, what we do and what we have done and what you will do is a ministry that is based on humble obedience. We serve, yes, but it is only God that creates life. Paul and Apollos, now Apollos was another servant who taught. Paul and Apollos represent diversity in ministry. They represent diversity in ministry, and we need diversity in ministry. There are, there are the evangelists who go and they share the gospel, and that's what they do. There are disciplers, those who take those who have heard it and take them deeper. There are administrators, people that don't do either of those, but keep track of the things so that those two people can have water and a bathroom and air conditioning. There are people that do music. All of those people represent diversity in ministry, and yet there is an interdependence. They're all working for one purpose, and that is to glorify God and to build his kingdom. And so they're saying this, we do these things and we do them in humble obedience, but it is only God that creates life. Paul and Apollos, we just represent diversity in ministry, and we represent diversity in all those who are called to serve the one true God who is the one that does anything. We use our gifts for him, and we do it in humility. Because we can serve all day long. The most talented and the most gifted pastor, church leader, whoever is still 100% dependent on the work of God. On the work of God. And so verse 9b, verse 9b through 11, shift over from an agricultural illustration to an architectural illustration. And in verse 9b, they shift from an illustration from the agricultural realm of me planting things to now building on a foundation. And so Paul recognizes then, he recognizes the temporary but important role that he has played and is playing. Think about those men that built that bridge in Guatemala. It was a temporary role, but it was an important role. But it was temporary. What was important was not the bridge. What was important was that the gospel was being spread and the gospel was breaking down doors. And so Paul says the same thing. Don't build on me. Don't build on Apollos. Build on the one who it's all about, not the one who plants the seed, the one who causes the seed to grow. Build on the permanent, which is Jesus Christ. And then in verse 11, he takes your mind to the, to the architectural plane and he says, begin to think about what a building is like. Because when you begin to think about what a building is like, you will understand the importance of Christ and no other. Because when Christ is like a foundation, Christ like a foundation determines everything else about a building. A foundation determines everything else about a building. 
It determines whether it's a strong building, whether it is a durable building, what size the building is going to be, all the dimensions, what it is going to be used for. The foundation determines everything else. And he says, don't build on someone that will come and go. Build on the one who has conquered death, was, is, and is to come. Christ is our sure foundation. There's obviously something about this day that makes me uh, reflective. One of the uh, aspects that makes me reflective is the very first time I preached a sermon at Corinth Reformed Church in that pulpit right there, I preached on this text. And it was the night of December the 16th of 1992, uh, there were 250 people gathered in this congregation, which was a really big crowd. It was like the whole active church family, and the tension was high in the air. To let you know, uh, and if you didn't know this story, how thick the tension was, later that night there would be a vote on whether to call me as pastor, and it was 71% in favor. So most pastors wouldn't come somewhere if they know in advance there are 30% of the people against them. So uh, we, we came, and, uh, but so w- with that background of the tension that I knew there were a lot of people against and for my candidacy, and people were working uh, uh, very hard in either directions for lots of reasons. Some of them were just legitimate differences of opinion. But uh, so with that background, I later learned that I made the search committee very nervous with the opening to my sermon. Because I started by saying, I don't understand why anybody would call a church Corinth. And I went on to say the city of Corinth was known for its sexual immorality, for its, the temple of Aphrodite with a thousand female prostitutes. And to Corinthianize in the first century meant to practice sexual immorality. And a Corinthian girl was a euphemism for a prostitute. Why would you call a church Corinth? So I'm sure the search committee is going like, this is not going to go well tonight. We were on the bubble anyway. And then I went on to say, and the church at Corinth was known for its conflict. And you know what? It's become prophetic because that's exactly what you are. So uh, long story short, I wouldn't be telling the story. Of course, winners get to tell the story, right? I'm here. So uh, we made it through the vote. And, uh, but anyway, th- so this text takes me back to that moment and that story. But I wanted to come back to it, and I, I was tempted to sort of preach that sermon again, which I actually did on my 10th anniversary as pastor, so 15 years ago. But then I thought, you know, there, A, this is a different setting, and B, there are some new things about this text that are more applicable to this moment than that moment. Not new things about the text, new insights that I've gained. And one of them is the powerful difference between the two analogies that Paul creates here for the church. Because one of them, a garden or a field or a farm, represents humility because it represents the idea that I can't do anything, right? I can't grow stuff. I can't make stuff grow. So I don't care how how smart a scientist you are or how experienced a gardener you are, You can put water out there. You can put the seed exactly in the right place. You can fertilize it, but you don't create sunshine. And you can even water it, but you do not turn water and sun and soil uh, to cause a seed to grow a pumpkin or a watermelon or kale or whatever it is that you want. You don't do that. So there's a humility about that, 
as a, in contrast to the building. Because when you build something, at the end of the day, you go like, I did that. I drew the plans. I created a good, good, strong foundation. I found the right materials. I designed it. It's a good thing I did that. So why does Paul use these two different analogies? He uses one of them for the purpose of humility the garden so that you can never say, I did this. And that's why it's such folly to give credit to human beings who are leaders. No human leader can do anything. Paul doesn't do it. Apollos doesn't do it. I need this analogy to show you that ultimately it's only God that grows the farm, what grows in the farm. But on the other hand, the idea of a garden is actually rather fragile and it's uh, temporary And there's no guarantee that even if you grow a really good garden and things are going well, that it's going to be healthy again in a week, much less that you're going to be able to grow a crop the next year. But when you build a building, the building is a symbol of stability and strength and endurance. So that's why you need both of these things together, because both of them are true of the church. And so back to that night uh, from December the 16th of 1992, I was trying in my sort of surface understanding of this congregation and its conflict and of its history even to, uh, to talk about how this would apply to that church. But I was kind of blunt, I would say even a little bit cheeky. And so after I said, you know, uh, uh, I don't understand why somebody would call a church Corinth, I told them that whereas the first century church would say, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or Peter. You people at Corinth, they're saying, I follow Kilburn, or Sperry, or Althaus. You're doing the same thing, and you're in danger of the same kind of division as they were. And I'll never forget, two days before my call, I was going through some individual interviews with people who had signed up, and one lady, uh, so Dr. Althaus was the longest-serving pastor of this church who was here when we built this uh, sanctuary and the current campus. And I'll never forget this lady who sat across from me at the table, and she said, you know what the problem with this church is? And I said, what's that? She said, Dr. Althaus died. And I said to the congregation that night, yes, Dr. Althaus died, and so did every other previous pastor, and if I come as your pastor, I will too. My tenure, no matter how long it lasts, and honestly, we didn't know how long it would last. Uh, Nobody was certain that I would make it out of the first year or two. Uh, parenthesis, but this is, you know, I get to tell the story. Winners tell the story, right? So the search committee even put into my contract that they would give me a housing bonus to buy a house, but it was prorated, and I owed it back if I didn't last two years. So that's how sure they were that Bob was going to be around, right? So nobody knew what was going to happen, and here it is 26 years later. But, you know, Dr. Althaus did die, and he he was in his 70s, but he was also uh, ill, and he, got, he retired before he wanted to, and within a year after his retirement, he passed away. But that story pales in comparison to the second longest-serving pastor of Corinth, who made it 27 years. So I'm currently in third place, but I'm going for second. I'm not going for first, all right? 39 years is a bit long. But the second longest-serving pastor was Dr. Joseph Murphy, and he... Uh, he was the one who was pastor when they built the beautiful downtown church, which was the most amazing cathedral hickory it ever had when it was completed in 1911. What followed then was World War I, which shook everybody's world in so many different ways, but World War I lasted from 1914 to 1918, and in 1917, 
Dr. Murphy, who had been pastor for 27 years and shepherded them through that building and through the war years, had a stroke and died the next day. So you think about the uncertainty of those moments and the uncertainty of human leaders. And when you put your trust and confidence in human leaders, in one way or another, God will make sure that that human leader is not the source of your confidence and your strength and your foundation. And that's why it's very humbling for me to stand before you on this 150th anniversary. But I want to tell you, God is not worried about me or about his church. And there were people in 1917 who I'm sure said, we'll never be the same. Corinth can't come back from Dr. Murphy's death. And I know there were people in the 1970s who said, we can never come back. Like we had Dr. Althouse, we were so together, we grew during during those years, we can never come back. And I'm just going to tell you, God is not worried about Corinth. The church is two things. Number one, it's fragile. And it's God-dependent so that no person, leader or otherwise, can say the reason we're here is because of a person of a human being. It's fragile. But secondly, the church is secure and strong. And it's not because of a human leader. It is because of the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we're in a season of Corinth where it feels like we are strong and stable, but it's always fragile. It's always vulnerable. We never know what's going to happen to Pastor Bob or Pastor Paul or any of the other leaders that God has given to Corinth in our generation. But God is not worried about this church, and he's especially not worried about the church. It's his church. It belongs to him. I have been, over the last few months especially, digging through the records of previous layers of Corinth Church. And the humbling thing about that is at some point I realized that 50 years from now, and maybe it will be until then, when somebody is going like, all right, we need to do it again. We need to write the history all over again. And somebody's going to be digging through the layers, through this layer of Corinth Church. And I'm going to tell you, I hope they don't look at this layer and say, boy, Corinth really went great there. We love Bob's sermons or, you know, he's well organized or he offered or preached a great funeral or whatever. I hope that what people say when they dig down to this layer is we talked about Jesus all the time. The only foundation on which a church, any church, the church stands is Jesus Christ. So I'd like to invite you now to a renewal of our covenant. It is in your uh, bulletin toward the back. It is on page 15. Uh, Covenants are solidly biblical in uh, uh, in their precedent. And what I'd like to ask you to do is to stand with me. This is a combination of scripture, creed, and an anniversary prayer at the back of our hymnal. And if these are not your words, you can be silent. It's okay. But I'm just inviting you to join me in a renewal of centering our life and confidence in who God is and in our only foundation, which is Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me, please? God, creator and father, we come before you a rebellious people. We have denied your intentions for us. We have preferred our way to Christ's way. We have disobeyed your commandments. And we have worshipped ourselves and the things we have made. Forgive us, restore in us the knowledge of who we are, and make us alive to serve you in faith, obedience, and joy.
Through Jesus our Lord. Amen.